0: Welcome to episode 32 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and all sorts of other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher, and joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for quite a while now, and Mike also draws his experiences from working within the healthcare industry today's episode is part two of what became a three-part series discussing blood pressure if you have not yet listened to part one of this series make sure to check that out we discussed mineral balance and the importance of energy as far as blood pressure regulation goes and in today's episode we'll be talking about the underlying causes of hypertension or high blood pressure and whether the blood pressure drugs effectively address these causes. And we'll also be talking about what is involved in the physiology of a dysfunctional vascular system and how this involves various processes like swelling and edema and fibrosis and calcification. And if you're not familiar with those terms, we'll be explaining what those things mean. And then we'll also be talking about some nutritional recommendations for hypertension in regard to dietary minerals and electrolytes and the best types of fats for high blood pressure, and also how anti-nutrients in our food affect our blood pressure regulation. And again, just as a disclaimer, none of this is medical advice, so if you are dealing with any medical conditions, make sure to discuss any of these things with your healthcare professional. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where I'll be linking to the studies and articles and anything else that we discuss throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with hypertension or you have other issues with blood pressure regulation, or if you are dealing with low energy levels and fatigue or chronic pain or joint pain, weight gain, gut symptoms or other gut issues, cravings and hunger, hormonal imbalances, poor sleep, all of these are low energy symptoms and can be improved by maximizing your cellular energy and if you want to learn some of the basics as far as how you can do that, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy and sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I will do just that. I'll walk you through some of the most important things to do as far as nutrition and lifestyle are concerned, including exercise and, and stress as well, uh, in order to maximize your cellular energy and help you uh, resolve all of those low energy symptoms. So to sign up for that free, Energy balance mini course. Head over to jfeldmanwellness.com/energy, and with that, let's get started.
1: This is anecdotal; it's not necessarily experimental research, but in the hospital, working with with certain patients, um, a part, particularly one patient in 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 specific, um, he had had a stroke. He was he was pretty young, and the the doc the stroke was a hemorrhagic stroke. So, and, and so, and the reason I say that specifically is because in embolic strokes where the vessels have been blocked off by an embolism or essentially a clot, they allow something called permissive hypertension up to a certain level to allow perfusion to some extent to those tissues. So it's okay. So basically we don't control their blood pressure so much. We don't bring their blood pressure down drastically to like 100 over 70 or or lower than 120 over 80, which is the the generally accepted level that, that everybody should be at or below. And so they allow it to be a little bit higher. And so, but his blood pressures were insanely high. Uh, so since his wasn't an embolic, he was hemorrhagic. And so the thing for him was his blood pressures were insanely high. They were off the charts high and they would aggressively treat his blood pressure, like very aggressively, multiple, uh, multiple, blood pressure medications and diuretics, a lot of, he had a lot of things on board basically. And when his blood pressure was very high, his mental function was great, Mm -hmm. (laughs) interestingly enough. So he would talk, he would, he would, uh, he was aphasic, which means, and he had a a expressive aphasia, which means that he couldn't really, he couldn't express himself. So basically where he had the stroke, it damaged part of his brain that allowed him to form words. So he wasn't able to, to form words. Uh, or sentences or coherent sentences, he could say words, and he could nod, Yet, so but he can understand you. And so, when his blood pressure was very high, it would be very easy to interact with him and be, hey, sir, I'm going to take your blood pressure, I'm going to take your vital signs, I have your medications, and he'd be fine, and, you know, I would be a little bit suspect because his blood pressure would be in the 200s, and that's the problem, the doctors knew they were addressing it. But as soon as he got all of his blood pressure medications, and we got his blood pressure back into range, his mental function would go. So he wouldn't be he wouldn't be very um, he wouldn't be talking at all. He could sort of just nod a little bit and he wasn't very interactive. And so this may or may not have been the case, but from my understanding of the situation when I'm when I'm looking at him, I was essentially thinking to myself, like, hmm, I mean, we dropped his blood pressure down to range. We got him, he was still hypertensive, but for him, that was pretty good down into the 130s, 140s on systolic, which is the top number. And so, basically, what I was thinking to myself was, okay, so now he doesn't have so much perfusion to those tissues, so they're not really they're not really functioning very well anymore. He's he doesn't have that blood supply, those nutrients, that oxygen, so he's is the mentation is going down. His function is decreasing a little bit, and so it, I was my thought process was that he was elevating the blood pressure to allow for that perfusion, and so and it, that's understood as I mentioned before with people who have embolic strokes or clots is that having a higher blood pressure may be helpful to allow for perfusion. And so if we extrapolate this idea, whether or not my anecdote was, it was actually what's going on, but even if we go with the idea of permissive hypertension, which is where you allow the, the higher amount of blood pressure when you have an embolic stroke or you have a clot, um, you can see that perhaps the body is actually elevating blood pressure. As Jay mentioned previously, when you have times where the tissue is under hypoxia or it not getting a, enough oxygen, an oxygenation from decreased blood supply, and so I th- I think that's a, that's a really important piece to point out because if you have anywhere where your, your blood supply is poor and your tissues are acquiring it, the body may be elevating it for that particular reason. And in in some cases, that's and specific to people's kidneys, especially when they have diseases where they have scarring of the vessels that lead to the kidneys the kidneys ex- elevate blood pressure drastically because of their decreased perfusion and so these are examples where we see okay that what's actually causing the elevated pressure and it's because of perfusion issues
0: yeah so what you're basically saying is that the increase in blood pressure is a protect- protective adaptive response and in this in some cases maybe it allows for proper oxygenation Maybe it allows for better blood flow. Maybe it allows for better perfusion in the kidneys uh, and allows for you know nutrient delivery, whatever it is. And so if we just look at that as a problem and then try to reduce the blood pressure with drugs, we're going to also reduce that protective adaptive response and then we're left functioning with less oxygen, less nutrients, less perfusion and just because we're treating this symptom.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then again, it. with that said though, Having that blood pressure consistently elevated doesn't mean that that's a good thing it that yeah. over time that could still be an issue
0: and it's right and it's the the problem is what's leading to it. it exactly it is a symptom of a of some sort of dysfunction, so we want to treat that dysfunction, fix the dysfunction, which we talked about a lack of energy being one of those main problems there, and then mineral imbalance being another one uh that That are some of those, you know, kind of primary underlying uh, dysfunctions. And along with that is like excess stress, for example, which goes directly is directly tied with that energy side of things where when you're under a lot of stress, you're not going to be producing energy well.
1: Exactly. And it will do uh, and even psychological stress will elevate sympathetic nervous system activity, which will cause basal constriction and and can increase blood pressure as well. So those are factors to to look at. And then the other thing I want to point out, and I'm pretty sure about this, an increase uh, endotoxin from the gut and bacterial components from the gut, another factor to look at, can also raise blood pressure directly by interfering with vascular compliance and also in and also elevating sympathetic nervous system and the RAS system directly as well. Um, and also affecting things like antidiuretic hormones. So I think it's important to these are what we're basically talking about now are underlying factors to look at for why the blood pressure would be high. So we have things like like stress and that could be psychological, that could be whether you're not providing enough nutrients whether as salt or electrolytes or things like that. It could be you have areas in the body that have uh, hypoxia or decreased blood supply um, causing a need for increased blood pressure Uh, and that could be from eating large amounts of polyunsaturated fatty acids for years on end and having damage within the vasculature. And so these are just some general ideas to look at for areas to address. Maybe you have damage in the vasculature causing hypoxia. Again, what we said, the electrolytes, or you have some type of gut issue or infection uh, raising those adaptive systems. And what I want to point out from here that's important is that while addressing the blood pressure, may, it can actually be helpful to inhibit some of those uh, adaptive pathways to some extent with drugs in some circumstances the question is why are they happening in the first place so ha- and then how can we address that underlying issue whether it is, if it is any of those things that i mentioned before and then the question the other question from there is what is the balance between inhibiting that adaptive pathway while also addressing the issue it, itself because if the pathway is going crazy and you're just getting ridiculously high blood pressures and you're putting yourself in territory of having a stroke are having a, a heart attack or something like that because of excessively high pressures or because the system, the adaptive system is causing damage itself because it's been activated for such a long term, adjusting those with drugs may be helpful. I'm not saying that it's not, but at, at the question is, where does it become helpful? Like, where's the balance between using those systems, but then also addressing the underlying problem as well? Because you may have to do both depending on what the context is. So it's not that you should never use ACE inhibitors or blood pressure medications or anything like that, the question is, are you fixing the underlying problem as well? And then how do you find that balance between addressing those symptoms with drugs and fixing the underlying problem?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say on the drug side of it or on the medication side, using the things that will be the closest to fixing the underlying problem, the better. So using thyroid hormone, for example, using clonidine. To, to inhibit the stress system as opposed to an ACE inhibitor, I think would be a better option. But I mean, that's kind of minutiae there.
1: I've seen some blood pressure medications like Carvetolol. I think that's the one specifically that I looked at. Besides, because again, when we talk about drugs, everybody focuses just on the generally advertised pharmaceutical effect. So when you look yeah. at metformin, it's like, oh, metformin, it has a blood glucose lowering effect. And it, but when you look at the pathways and how it has that effect, it's not good. Like the pathways that it does it by are ridiculous; they're yeah. terrible. But at the same time, it also has an antibiotic effect and decreases endotoxin, which is good, which is is a beneficial effect. So with a drug like carvedilol, it does lower blood pressure by inhibiting being a, um, I think it's a beta a beta blocker. Beta blocker yeah. Exactly. So it blocks the the beta the beta receptor in the adrenergic system. It's just a Um, part
0: of the stress system.
1: Exactly. And But it also had a strong antioxidant effect and prevented uh, lipid peroxidation within the bloodstream. And so, as we talked about before, when you have, if you're eating a lot of polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are vulnerable to lipid peroxidation, when you take a drug that's inhibiting that lipid peroxidation, besides lowering blood pressure, it also may have a beneficial effect by inhibiting that lipid peroxidation. And especially because most people are taking it every single day um then you can also inhibit some maybe some of the vascular damage from the lipid peroxide products
0: sure yeah yeah and similar to how you know what we had talked about with the statins where there are certainly costs associated with them if there are benefits they're likely associated with other effects that they have and uh you know in, in the case of some of these ras inhibitors or some of the you know some of these blood pressure drugs you could say that there are benefits even from their direct effects but there are certainly costs as well Exactly. Even in the textbook, it
1: doesn't say that high blood pressure necessarily is causing like cardio, cardiac hypertrophy or anything like that. It says that cardiac hypertrophy is induced by extended exposures to angiotensin 2 causing inflammation and then excessive inflammation over time leading to um, like fibrosis and things like that. So, yeah. and then they, when they talk about cardiac hypertrophy, they don't just say it has, basically what they're saying is there's actually a loss of cardiomyocytes and like a cardiomyocyte apoptosis and an increase in fibrosis. So it's not that the heart muscle is getting hyper, hypertrophic, like a muscle would from exercise. It's actually becoming uh fibrotic. So it's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's a degenerative process. I mean, and I mean, obviously it is, you see it in heart failure and things like that. So, but yeah it's interesting because even the textbook says that that under the influence these extendedly and i'm pretty sure hate it posted studies about aldosterone and and different things like that increasing um calcification within the vasculature over time and that (laughs) would make sense that would make sense because cortisol especially because things like cortisol over time can cause features of diabetes and damage to the liver and things like that so I wouldn't be surprised if the adaptive processes directly do that as well because they they are inhibiting the the to some extent the energy production of the those cells along the along the vasculature and and affecting the vas- and affecting those cells within the vasculature in a negative way over time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, so as far as I mean definitely the overall goal here is to address the factors on, that are leading to the high blood pressure. You had mentioned earlier to just, you know, maybe be careful with, you know, having too much salt and things if you have kidney disease or, or heart disease or things, which yeah. definitely check with your doctor for sure if if you're in any of those circumstances. But we're not saying that these things don't apply in those scenarios. We're just saying to make sure that you consult with a medical professional beforehand if, if you're in a scenario to where you would need to. Yeah,
1: um, it, I think that's really important to mention, too, because. It, once, when you are in those later stages of things, the the processes are, are all are all askew. So there's a lot of things going on, and in people with chronic kidney disease, even if you start taking in good foods and things like that, like juices for potassium and dairy for calcium, you can get electrolyte abnormalities that can seriously harm you and seriously injure you because your kidneys aren't aren't able to deal. With the the electrolytes appropriately, and and make sure that the concentrations in the blood are the, are correct. And so, and the blood is very tightly regulated for healthy people. And and so, when you have those alterations, even just small alterations in potassium and thing, and, and or sodium or anything along those lines, you can get serious issues like mental changes from sodium or heart heart issues from potassium or even um, um, arrhythmias. From potassium and magnesium, so it's really important to when you're in those later stages. If, if people who are if people who are listening are in those later stages, to be very careful and to talk to their doctor about assessing things. Um, and then the other thing is you have interactions with medications that are important to to look at as well. Um, you you don't want to inhibit some of those processes. They've been going on for a long time, and it, it, it's a more complicated picture in that sense. And so again, just it, important to be very cautious and to work with a doctor on that specifically and we're not giving anybody direct medical advice here <laughs> this is us to this is us talking about the processes and then weight and our understanding of things and then ways to deal with it from this perspective
0: yep and yeah just check with your medical professional before implementing anything none of this yeah. is advice it's just ideas so yeah uh, to to mention another thing that you had you were talking about endotoxin and lipopolysaccharide well same thing but you're talking about endotoxin and it contributing to increased blood pressure and we know that serotonin is a major part of that endotoxin nitric oxide cascade of stress and serotonin is a major part of the rest system and does increase blood pressure so we do have a pretty pretty good mechanism there of of that happening and as i know you've pointed out in a previous episode serotonin literally has to do well i'll let you go ahead and say it like what is sero is blood and tonin is Increasing As the, tone.
1: Yeah. Increasing oh, tone. Yeah. So, so your tone
0: Right. So the name of serotonin literally means that it is increasing blood pressure, increasing vasoconstriction.
1: Yeah. It is a vasoconstrictor. It, yeah. If you inject serotonin, it vasoconstricts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and, and just, you know, again, kind of, uh, I want to transition to talk about some of the, some of the details that go on in, the, in this dysfunctional situation. So we have serotonin, aldosterone, the stress hormones uh, adrenaline and cortisol and then also nitric oxide all of these playing a role in the rest system as basically being emergency systems to increase blood pressure and on the nitric oxide side nitric oxide side you have an emergency kind of vasodilator when you don't have co2 available or, or when you're under stress and uh, don't have enough co2 relative to your needs so when you have this stress system active it does as we've talked about it's helpful in the immediate sense uh where it restores oxygenation blood flow all of those things and it helps to restore that you know initially it helps to restore that easy charge as well if we're talking about that side of it where the stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol act as emergency backup energy production uh stimulators where in the short term they're going to increase energy production which in this case would maintain that exclusion zone in the vasculature and maintain blood flow in that way so we have all of these different mechanisms of basically maintaining nutrient delivery and circulation. But in the long term, they cause a lot of damage. And we talked about a lack of potassium and sodium being a big part of it. We talked about in the long term, these stress hormones, both the adrenaline and cortisol, but also aldosterone, for example, inhibiting energy production and causing swelling. And that's another huge part of this process where the inflammation, specifically in the vasculature, and the permeability and swelling or edema... Are all kind of a concerted process where when you have damage to the cell, or you have excess sodium inside the cell and a lack of potassium and magnesium in the cell, or you have a cell that isn't producing a lot of energy and isn't able to keep its water structured, what happens is you have an inflow of, pota- of you have an inflow of sodium and an inflow of water, uh, both due to the permeability of the cell. Well, due to the permeability, basically permeability is like the just the characteristic and that leads to cell swelling or edema. And when this is happening in the vasculature, this is another mechanism where you have reduced blood volume, which is, you know, we talked about that happening when you have too little sodium, which furthers this whole process, contributing to further increases in blood pressure. And the kind of secondary processes here, which we talked about as far as atherosclerosis, atherosclerosis is the hardening of the arteries, the calcification, and the fibrosis, which you, you talked a little bit about as far as collagen goes, and not having enough vitamin C being a major part of kind of that hardening. So that calcification and fibrosis are basically sequential processes that happen after the initial inflammation and, and edema when those things are continuing on in the long term. And so in the long term, that is like the we've talked about kind of the underlying processes and how they contribute to this high blood pressure system. And this is the, I feel like it's important to elucidate this as a viable mechanism as to how you end up with atherosclerosis and hardening of arteries while the high blood pressure is just a symptom. And so you have these other processes that all directly cause that uh, without actually needing to blame any of it really on, on the high blood pressure itself.
1: And I think it's uh, the, one of the things that you pointed out that was, that's important to mention is, and a lot of people who have heart issues or who have heart disease, one of the main symptoms they seem to get is swelling. Mm-hmm. Um, And so, you're, you're, and and even within the swelling, even when you have swelling, they can have high blood pressure. And so, the, the blood pressure is high, not necessarily because there's too much water within the vasculature. The vasculature is most likely basal constricted. Right. Um, but, what's actually going on is the water is actually within the cells are taking up water and they call it third spacing because you have the intracellular compartment and then the extracellular cons- or then the the extracellular compartment. and the water is sort of just like moving into they call it the third space, or you have the intracellular compartment and then you have like the lumen or the vasculature where the where it flows. And then the extracellular compartment is they call it the third space where the fluid just sort of accumulates there. But what within the model that we're looking at, was probably more likely is that the cells themselves are having an energy failure or uh, uh, basically an energy failure. And then the waters, they can't maintain that specific gradient between potassium inside the cell and sodium outside the cell. So the sodium is moving within the cell and then essentially their tissues are swelling. Um, and so a lot of times what, and you can also find this in people with lung inflammation and things like, and, and any diseases within the lungs or and, and inflammation in the lungs, particularly especially within the chronic diseases, um, they develop uh, water within the lungs. And a lot of times doctors will put put a lot of diuretics on board, and that will that can get some of the water out. but this, the, the problem underlying is that when you have those inflammatory states, especially the systemic ones, you're having those energy failures, then the cells aren't able to structure themselves appropriately and then they're going to take up water. So you can take the, you can try and take all the fluids out of the body with a diuretic, and that may remove some of the water from those cells because there's nothing for the cells to take up. But it still doesn't fix the underlying problem of the of the energy destruction or the the destruction in energy production by the cells and then the subsequent swelling. So even when you look at it, the problem is a, is an energy problem. It comes down to an energy problem. When the cells don't have the ability to produce energy, for whatever reason that is, um, whether they don't have enough uh, blood supply supplying them nutrients and oxygen, um, or there's, it basically all comes down to having uh, adequate nutrients and oxygen to a large extent. And so whenever that any of those processes are interrupted over the long term for a variety of reasons, and you get that energy breakdown, then you're going to have the cells swell because of the loss of structuring from the energy production. And whether that's in our, the model that we talk about, which is structure of water, or even within the mainstream traditional model that, that current modern medicine runs under, it is understood that when you have the mitochondria within the cells fail, then you have an adjustment of the potassium, in the, which is inside the cell, and then the sodium, which is outside the cell, having the sodium move into the cell and bringing water with it. It is a key... key uh, function or process that occurs in both models and it is a function of energy failure and it's directly stated in any in any biology cellular biology book it, you'll look into it and it'll say what happens Ener- mitochondrial function fails potassium and sodium pump on the cellular membrane fails water moves into the cell cell swells and then you have and then you have uh intracellular calcium move into the cell and then the cell starts to die and so that's the general process so when you see people with swelling to in a lot of cases, especially in chronic heart failure, it is energy failure, and it ties directly within the model that we're talking about.
0: Yeah, and in talking about that swelling, a much like a swollen muscle that is like normally hard after working out, for example, swollen vasculature is in a contracted state, or at least a semi-contracted state, and it can't dilate, it can't relax. Uh, so you have that same feature when you do have that cellular edema due to that permeability, due to the energy failure. You do then have a lack of ability for the vascular to relax causing constriction and leading to that symptom of, of high blood pressure.
1: Exactly. You will have by when the, and I think it's important to point out here with that, that when you have a, a uh, if you, so say we have a tube and it's but you have water running through the tube. If we have the same amount of water running through the tube and the lumen gets smaller, there's more pressure within that tube, even at, and at a certain point, even if there's less fluid running through that tube, but the the hole or the lumen of that tube is small enough, you'll still have a high pressure. So you can have contracted vasculature and still run high blood pressures. It, and that's purely by the fact that you have a certain amount of fluid moving through a certain, through a certain size of lumen or a certain, certain size too. And the, the yeah, thing for. I think you meant
0: low blood volume and still high blood pressure.
1: Yeah. You can have low blood volume and still have high blood pressure. Exactly. Yeah. So it, because at a certain point the tube is the lumen of the tube is small enough that even a small amount of fluid is going to exert a decent amount of pressure against the wall because of how, and, and, and the, the our, our, the, our tubes in our body, our vasculature, our, our arteries, mostly, most specifically our arteries have the ability to contract and change size pretty, pretty significantly. Um, right. depending on what the stimulus is. So you can, so it's not really, it's not really a question of, how much fluid necessarily you have in your vasculature. I mean, because a lot of times a, nur- a nurse or a patient will have a low blood pressure and nurses or whatnot will tell them, oh, just drink some water. Just drink some water, I'll raise the blood pressure. And it's like that is one factor that can affect it, yes, but you also have the compliance of the vessel and then the viscosity of the blood, which the drinking water will also affect. But there's, I would say that besides just how much fluid you have on board, it's also, also how, what the size of the lumen is is important.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and so we have this larger view where at, at essence, energy failure is one of the main problems here. We also have the the electrolyte imbalance is kind of one of the other main ones. You had mentioned some things that affect that energy production process, being nutrients and oxygen, which are huge parts of it. There are a ton of other things that inhibit energy production, like endotoxin that you mentioned earlier, like various parts of these stress systems. Aldosterone is another one of them. Uh, all of these things that can block our ability to produce energy and that will all contribute to this process of hypertension. So basically, the you know we want to restore energy production, restore the streaming of energy and our general metabolic function and keep inflammation low and maintain a good mineral balance that'll allow us to maintain good blood volume and good blood flow, uh, which is also affected by the energy systems as well. So considering all that, hopefully people have at least some some decent picture of kind of what's going on there and what happens when those things go wrong. Hopefully it was uh, clear enough. Let's talk through what that actually looks like as far as, okay, you have high blood pressure. What are the things that make sense to implement in order to bring it down in a healthy way and fix some of those things that are underlying as opposed to just addressing the symptom?
1: Before we go there, I want to say that if we did not explain something clear enough and people want us to explain something With more clarity, whether that's this podcast or any other podcast, just leave a comment and let us know and and we'll do like a deeper dive into something or we'll clarify something or maybe we'll throw a chart up on there and explain things. Like, For example, if, if we talked about the RAS system and somebody wants to know specifically how the RAS system works and then how the different drugs, specifically blood pressure medications like ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. Um, or beta blockers work within that system. We'll, we can explain it. Just, just let us know. I mean, so I know we haven't said that before, but we're, if we're like going too fast through something, or we're just glancing over it, because I know specifically for that, I tend to just glance over things sometimes. And I know you, you help fill in for me a lot because I just like, oh yeah, endotoxin, and you're like, well, endotoxin is because for us, it's something that we that we talk about with each other all the time. And so it's like a, it's like a common, uh, commonly understood word because we're so interested in reading about this stuff. I mean, it's just, it's become like just another everyday word and the system is understood automatically. But I know a lot of people, they don't talk about this stuff that often. and So we have no problem explaining it and we'd like to explain it. If people, if people need that, it's like, we, we'd be fine doing that. It's not a problem. I just want to put that out there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah. Uh, definitely. I mean, that's what we're here for. So, uh, if you if you do, if there's any aspect of yeah this podcast or others where you'd like some clarification or other topics you'd like us to talk about, where you have particular questions, you can leave those in the comments on the YouTube videos or send me an email at j jay at That's jay at jayfeldmanwellness.com. Okay. So at this point, let's talk about what we should, you know, what somebody should be doing if they do have high blood pressure, hypertension. Or if they're just looking to make sure that their blood pressure is regulated or if they've been told that, you know, they should be keeping an eye on it. Of course, with all of this, as we mentioned, talk with your doctor. It's not actual advice or recommendations. We're just talking through some some ideas here. But, you know, we've we've discussed how so much of this comes down to mineral balance and and the energy side. And as far as mineral balance goes and in regard to salt, especially, I mean, the first thing that I think, you know, we would say is is to salt your food to taste. You know, we alluded to those or uh, referenced those studies earlier showing that, uh, you know, about two to three teaspoons of salt per day is typically ideal for cardiovascular health. And so I think that that's generally a good uh, recommendation. But, you know, because we have such tightly regulated blood pressure regulating systems, our, our blood pressure is so tightly regulated or, you know, the salt concentrations in our blood are so tightly regulated our taste is really our taste for these sorts of things is really the best indicator because there may be a reason why somebody wouldn't want to have as much salt in which case they might not have a craving for it and and that can have to do with other minerals as well maybe there's some sort of a potassium deficiency or um, a lack of magnesium or calcium or something like that and and that has been shown where in a potassium deficient diet salt will cause eating you know a, a regular amount of salt will cause high blood pressure but if there is enough potassium it won't so Uh, So yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the main reasons why I would say just a salt to taste, but then of course also make sure that you're getting enough of those other minerals, the potassium, magnesium, and calcium. And as far as some of the foods to focus on there, I mean, as long as you're eating whole foods for the most part, you know, and and eating good quality foods, you should be getting enough of these minerals, uh, you know, especially high quality fruits, cooked vegetables, cooked root vegetables, dairy, uh, yeah. Juice. Exactly. And, you know, anything related to fruit, whether it is you know, fruit itself or, or juice or uh, dried fruit. But yeah, I mean, those are all going to be really great sources of all of these minerals. Uh, of course, calcium, especially from dairy and then also uh, like cooked leafy greens are another source of, of calcium. So, I mean, I would say as long as those are those sorts of things are making up a good portion of your diet, you should be pretty balanced as far as mineral, minerals go.
1: And then I would say it's also important once you have your minerals in line and you're getting an adequate amount of all the different types of minerals, not only salt, but or sodium, but also potassium, calcium, magnesium, as you mentioned, and those are all great foods, is avoiding an excess of polyunsaturated fatty acids so you don't damage the lining of the vasculature and, and over time affect compliance and things like that, uh, vascular compliance, um, and basically form plaques. So even further down the line is to form plaques. So avoiding those uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids and focusing more on the saturated fatty acids, which also fall in line with a lot of the foods you mentioned like dairy or using butter fat or, or beef tallow or cocoa butter or coconut oil, um, those types of fats will, will have a significantly less amount of polyunsaturated fatty acids and will basically over time should cause less uh, plaque formation and hardening or sclerosis, which is extended inflammation of the vasculature.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those those polyunsaturated fats are one of the best ways to block our ability to produce energy and directly cause damage because of how fragile they are and how unstable they are. And as you said, that's a really good way to cause vascular damage and prevent the ability for our vasculature to relax, which is really important for blood pressure regulation when they're not relaxed, when they're... Uh, constricted that's going to increase blood pressure and normally that's kind of the system through which that's happening so yeah i mean avoiding the polyunsaturated fats is huge of course these are the fats that we're told are heart healthy and are often (laughs) suggested for somebody who has high blood pressure you know the vegetable oils nuts and seeds fatty fish and they're also found in fatty chicken and pork that are not fed good food that are not pastured and so yeah and so instead favoring the saturated fats and you had mentioned uh cocoa butter and, and chocolate's another good uh a good source of magnesium there and uh, and coffee. saturated
1: fatty acids yep right
0: right exactly yeah uh yeah and, and you could also get some magnesium from coffee as well um yeah leafy
1: and, and, greens have a decent amount of magnesium mm-hmm. um some of your fruits have a decent amount of magnesium
0: yeah yeah all, yeah all the um, ones that we mentioned as far as potassium go also have magnesium too, um, dairy and fruits. And
1: yeah, the other thing to add to is a lot of, a lot of people like to mention nuts as a great source of magnesium mm-hmm. or minerals in general. Mm-hmm. And while on paper, based on daily recommended percentages and whatever else you see on labels for nuts, they may look like they have a decent amount of potassium and other minerals, but considering the other factors within nuts, they're term tend to be termed to anti-nutrients they wind up binding a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the minerals and vitamins within the nuts and making them relatively indigestible for us. And that goes along with, their pro- with the protein content as well. A lot of people list beans and nuts as a solid source of protein. And this is semi-tangential, but it, at the same time, it's, the protein is not very absorbable. It usually doesn't have a complete profile of amino acids. And it also is bound up with a bunch of other anti-nutrients that are inhibiting the absorption and digestion of not only the protein but the minerals and vitamins within those foods. Not to mention that if they're in their raw form, it's even more difficult to absorb those foods. And the problem is, is when you cook or you roast nuts, because most nuts, there are some nuts that don't have a high amount of polyunsaturated fatty acids, but most nuts have a high amount of polyunsaturated fatty acids. And roasting them actually uh, damages those fatty acids. So you may make some things more digestible with cooking marginally on some areas but at this but at the same time you might also be creating a bunch of damaged polyunsaturated fatty acids so it's important to to really look at the food sources from from that perspective um, and start to say okay what am i actually absorbing what am i actually taking in from my food into my body versus what is just arbitrarily on the label um, that's really important for looking at take getting in enough vitamins and enough minerals which is it's very important for maintaining vascular health as we talked about in this whole past episode
0: yeah yeah and those oxidized polyunsaturated fats are the ones that are associated with plaque and are found in our plaques which we talked about in, that, in those cholesterol episodes and even if you're taking in those polyunsaturated fats on you know in an unroasted nut or seed uh there's still a pretty good chance that those fats will become oxidized internally anyways but it's even worse if if you're already getting them oxidized and uh but yeah, and, and so it's a really good point that the legumes, you know, beans and um, and then nuts and seeds and grains are all often touted for having a ton of these nutrients. And as you said, you know, protein and a lot of times just because, you know, and just to kind of reiterate, just because it's shown that those things have the vitamins and minerals and protein in there does not mean that we actually absorb them. And that's because there are those anti-nutrients in there that block our ability to digest them and block our ability to absorb them. So uh so that's a reason not to necessarily favor those foods. However, if those are foods that you uh, that you like a lot or fit well into your diet, at the very least, uh, preparing them in a traditional way, meaning either fermenting them or soaking and sprouting them in addition to, to often cooking them, depending on, on which one we're talking about, yep. is, uh, is a good way to at least deactivate most of those anti-nutrients and make them you know make the minerals and vitamins and protein in there much more digestible and absorbable so that would be a, a much better option than just having the them in there yeah, and in and see which
1: and seeing which nut you're going to choose i mean if you do enjoy a salted nut or something like that then using something like macadamia nuts would be a better option than walnuts or peanuts or some or any of those or any of these other nuts because of those fatty acids present within the macadamia nut So you can choose, you can choose which nut you can eat and you can, there are some options that are a little bit better than others. And then the other thing to keep in mind is if you are craving a lot of nuts, it may be possible that you would be craving the fat and the salt content of the nut. And as we talked about, the salt is really, is, is important. And if you have that craving, especially because the texture with the fat and the salt together, it has like a very, uh, very palatable component to it. So, but you can meet those demands with other foods, say having chocolate, they have like sea salt, chocolate, sea salt, caramel, chocolate, things, things like that. Or if you have a a nice steak with cooked in butter and you salt it other, there's other foods that can also meet those demands. And you can try and see that if you use some other foods and then you stop the craving, well, maybe the craving wasn't actually for the nut as much as it was for the components that are found within the nut or even caloric density. Um, even in my own experience, if I work out really hard, I tend, I will tend to crave something very starchy, but Mm -hmm. once I have a meal that has a decent amount of fat and a decent amount of carbs and a decent amount of salt, then I tend that craving goes away. I don't have the craving at all anymore. So it's just something to keep in mind that the craving may actually be for the certain components that your body or your mind perceives as what that food is, but you're actually looking for those specific elements. And that's something to consider. With somebody who says, "Oh, I just love nuts so much," and or something along those
0: lines, right? Yeah. Do you actually like raw almonds, or or is it that you like the the roasted, you know, oils and and salt? And in salted, which case, yeah. yeah, yeah, and the fattiness. In which case, yeah, you you gave a few options as far as other places to get that. And another good one that I know we talk about a lot is potato chips that are uh, cooked in coconut oil, or even like olive oil or avocado oil would be okay as as secondary options. Uh, that you know is a good combination of of some starch some fat and you know mostly saturated fat and or at least low poof of fat and salt then potatoes are, are good sources of of nutrients as well as far as vitamins and minerals go which i think a lot of people don't recognize they just think of them as you know we're so used to looking at uh like people say empty calories and they're thinking of like refined white flour and uh you know and white sugar and things but potatoes don't fall in that category they're pretty there's a lot of nutrients in there
1: the whole idea of the white foods are, and it's just it's such an arbitrary i mean i know it's a shorthand rule but it potatoes are actually extremely nutrient dense as long as you tolerate them well and a lot of people seem to be able at least that i've worked with or have spent time with seem to tolerate a, a potato chip pretty well Uh, even if you especially people if they can't tolerate um like a baked potato so much or even boiled potatoes they tend to be some people tend to be okay with the potato chip And i think that is because the starch is cooked really well and it's saturated with an oil
0: yeah exactly
1: so so i guess from there um so right now we have get an adequate amount of electrolytes and we talked about where you can get them from those electrolytes being sodium potassium calcium magnesium those are the main the main ones. Obviously there's other minerals that you can take in and they will come with the foods that we mentioned. Uh, some of those foods being fruits, juice, dairy, cooked leafy greens, or, uh, or any type of chocolate or coffee, uh, if you do tolerate those foods. And then after that we had avoiding polyunsaturated fatty acids while also focusing on the saturated fatty acids and the foods that we got from there. Again, were dairy, um, any type of beef or ruminant meat. So that would be a beef, lamb, goat. Um, and then we have chocolate and then we have coconut oil. And then we have uh, what else?
0: I'm blanking. Yeah, that, That's that was, about it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So then after that, we have making sure that there's oh, eggs. Sorry.
0: <laughs> eggs yeah. is another one that we didn't mention, but they're. Very nutrient dense, especially as far as the vitamins, like the fat solu- soluble vitamins, go, which we haven't gotten to yet. And maybe we which should, is what know, we're,
1: we're going to get to, yeah. yeah.
0: All right, we are going to pause that discussion on nutrition for blood pressure regulation and pick it back up in part three of this series, where we will also be discussing the relationship between calcium and blood pressure, the relationship between thyroid health and blood pressure how we can raise carbon dioxide to improve our blood pressure regulation, and we'll also be going through supplements that you can use to lower your blood pressure and improve vascular health. If you did enjoy today's episode, please leave a review, a like, a comment, or a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does a lot to help support the podcast. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com podcast, where I'll link to any of these studies and articles and anything else that we discussed throughout today's episode. And if you are looking to improve various symptoms that we discussed today, in particular hypertension, but also anything else related to your metabolic health, excess stress, gut issues, joint pain, fatigue, uh, hormonal imbalances, or constant cravings and hunger, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I will walk you through the main things you can do to resolve those symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. And I'll explain exactly why all of these symptoms really come down to a lack of energy and talk you through some of the main things that you can do as far as nutrition and exercise and stress are concerned to resolve these symptoms and fix things on that energetic level. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I will see you in the next episode.